I am Charlotte Kassaragi, and in partnership with the House of Chanel, I present to you the Les Rencontres podcast. As part of the Rendezvous Littéraire at Rue Cambon, this podcast spotlights the birth of a female writer. You can listen to the various episodes and their authors on your preferred streaming platforms. Happy Saturday, it's June 24th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in London. And I'm Michael Haney here in New York City. Michael, it's the end of Pride Month. How have you celebrated? Well, basically, I don't have to leave my house because of the parade and everything here in the village. It's central to it all. So I can just sort of take it in as I go about my day. But it's, yeah, it's been Pride Month here pretty much. And we've got a terrific show for you as well today. First, we have the incredible story of the boy who fled Saigon as a 12-year-old refugee and has now returned as a Michelin-starred chef. It's the stuff of a Hollywood epic and Lloyd Grove will tell us all about it. And then it was a crime and a trial that riveted New York City, the case of the Central Park jogger. In 1989, a woman was assaulted in the park. Jeffrey Tubin is here to discuss his eye-opening piece on how the fates of two people involved in that crime have taken shockingly different paths. Ashley, where would you like to begin? Michael, I always want to start with food, so let's get Lloyd on here. Lloyd Grove is going to tell us how Peter Kong Franklin left Vietnam in 1975 and returned on a commercial jetliner as a Michelin-starred chef. Lloyd is a journalist who's based in France. His work has been published in the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, and the Daily Beast. We're very happy to have him here. Welcome, Lloyd. Okay, Lloyd, you have the extraordinary story in the issue this week of the 60-year-old chef who fled North Vietnam, went on to build a life for himself in the U.S. and then in Hong Kong, then ended up in Vietnam again. This is a real rise and fall and rise story. How did he first come across your radar? Well, my wife is a native of Vietnam. And so we go there on a regular basis for her to look after her various businesses there. And... We just ran into this chef, Peter Kong Franklin, at one of the foodie events that my wife likes to go to. I just thought he was a magnetic personality as I started to learn more about his story growing up in South Vietnam as a child during the war, at the height of the war, and then being helicoptered out as the North Vietnamese army took over the south part of the country and making a life in the United States, going to Yale University, graduating, going into Morgan Stanley as a Wall Street investment banker, and then deciding sort of mid-career, hey, this is not what I want to do. I'm a chef. And taking lessons in French cooking for a year at the Cordon Bleu in Bangkok. And 14 years later, He's gotten a Michelin star for his restaurant in Saigon, Anat, which means eat, eat in Vietnamese. And one of only four Michelin stars in the whole country of 100 million people. And it's the first time in the history of the Michelin Guide that Vietnam has restaurants with Michelin stars. And were you able to experience his food? Yes, several times. It's great. And it is up to a very high standard. And unlike... Almost every other Michelin-starred restaurant you'll go to around the world, it ain't that expensive. You can actually get a tasting menu for the equivalent of 68 bucks. And the high-standard tasting menu, there's a chef's tasting menu, 
that is more expensive, that's only a hundred bucks. And I got to tell you, I recently went to a Michelin restaurant in France and practically had an aneurysm when I got the bill. It was something on an order of $1,800 for two people. And it wasn't that good. One of the things that's made me so intrigued and I thought was very poignant in your story was when Peter Kwong Franklin wins his star, he thanks his mother and she sounds like a phenomenal person. And he even mentions like how his food was inspired by her. Can you tell us about her and about how this food is inspired by her and what you actually end up tasting there? Sure. So Peter and his younger brother grew up in a house with a dirt floor and no indoor plumbing in a small village outside Dalat in the central highlands of South Vietnam. And his mother had a little business out of her home, making various noodle dishes and pork dishes that were actually famous in the village. And people lined up to buy these dishes that she made on a charcoal-fired stove in their house. And Peter just hung out with her while she was and watched her make this food. And it was kind of like an imprinting experience for a, a child. And it just sort of, he inhaled the smells of the food. He w watched his mother cook. She taught him some of her secrets of cooking. And so this was the thing that sort of was the formative experience of his childhood. And then at age 12, he was spirited out of the country. Mother didn't want to go. She was offered a place on one of the helicopters, and she said, no, I'm staying, sticking here in Vietnam. And he lost touch with her for about 20 years, didn't know whether she was alive or more likely dead. Vietnam was shut off from the west of the world, from the rest of the world. And he finally managed to locate her, sent a friend to the village. And she was still there. She was still selling her dishes, her signature dishes, from this restaurant in the house. And he got in touch with her, they reunited. And anyway, this was all during a time when Peter Kong Franklin was working as an investment banker in Asia based in Hong Kong. And so he eventually realized that that was his calling, food. He always had an affinity for food, a deep interest in it. And he just decided basically under his mother's influence, and he credits her for all of this, that he needed to be a chef. I think it's really exciting, Lloyd, that we're seeing restaurants like this that are getting kind of international attention open up in Vietnam. What's your take on it as a tourist destination these days? What's the hotel scene, the museums? Like, what else are you finding that's fascinating in the culture? Well, Vietnam is obviously a beautiful country. There are a lot of sights to see. I've managed to avoid the all-expense-paid trip there offered by the government in 1973. But since meeting my wife on Match.com, by the way, over the past eight years, I've been there around nine times. And it's a terrific place. And the restaurant scene has exploded. And there are all kinds of... There, there are now four Michelin star restaurants as of June 6th of this year. Um, one in Saigon and... Uh, the other three in Hanoi, but they're really great restaurants all over the place, both offering Vietnamese food, Italian food, and of course, because of the long history between France and Vietnam. Vietnam was a colony of France, more or less, for hundreds of years. 
there are a lot of French restaurants and really good ones. So, and full disclosure, my wife has a beach resort there called Allez Bou. It's in the city of Fantiet and on the South China Sea. And so I would say, come on down. Well, Lloyd, thank you so much for not only this great story, but all of your great advice as well. We hope to talk to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Lloyd. Thanks, Lloyd. I love it too. And it also sounds delicious. Talk about reasons to get on a plane. What a life. Great piece of reporting. And speaking of, Jeffrey Tubin has a fantastic story this week. Ashley, will you tell us about it? A woman went jogging in Central Park and endured a very violent crime. And the case of the Central Park jogger, as it became known, captivated the nation for years and even decades since. Today, we have Jeffrey Tubin here to tell us all about what happened to two of the central figures in that case and how their fates have been dramatically different. Jeffrey is a longtime legal analyst for CNN, a longtime journalist with The New Yorker magazine. He is a lawyer, an author, a blogger, has written many books, and the most recent of those is Homegrown, Timothy McVeigh, and the Rise of Right-Wing Extremism. Welcome, Jeffrey Tubin. Hey. Jeffrey, you have a fascinating story in the issue this week. Who knows when it began, but I think probably we would say on April 19th, 1989. For those who don't remember, tell us about this case of the Central Park jogger. Okay, this is one of the defining events, I think, of New York City life over the past half century. It is something that was extremely significant at the time and I think has only become more significant as the years have passed. In short, what happened was late on the night of April 19th, a woman who later identified herself as Patricia Malley was jogging in Central Park and she was horrendously, horribly attacked and raped in the northern part of the park and essentially left to die. And she, in fact, almost did die. She lost a tremendous amount of blood. Her body temperature was low. She was in a coma for 12 days. Over the next two days, the NYPD arrested young teenage black kids, boys, who were ultimately charged with the rape and the assault on her. They became known as the Central Park Five. There was never any forensic evidence that tied them to the rape. No DNA, no hair and fiber. It was all, the case was almost entirely based on their so-called confessions. Some of those confessions were taken by a famous prosecutor named Linda Fairstein. Linda Fairstein was the head of the sex crimes unit in the Manhattan DA's office a real pioneer in sex crimes prosecution, a big hero to a lot of people for many decades. And though she didn't try the case, she was the supervisor and the five were ultimately convicted and sentenced to in the range of 10 years. And Linda Fairstein went on to a very significant career in the DA's office and then also became a best-selling writer. That's the first chapter of this story. Okay, so let's take us to the second chapter then. We've got these young men who are in jail. As you mentioned, they're basically children, right? Age 15 and 16 at the time of this event. What happens to them? Well, they all wind up serving in the range of five to 10 years in prison. All but one are ultimately released by the late 90s. But then in 2002, a man named Matthias Reyes, R-E-Y-E-S, who is already in prison in upstate New York, confesses to the jogger crime and says to the authorities, these five had nothing to do with it. I did it myself. He was in prison for a series of rapes that took place around that time in that part of Upper Manhattan. The Manhattan DA's office did a investigation of Reyes's confession, found that it was truthful, believable, and wound up moving 
to dismiss the cases against the five when, even though that had more symbolic effect than real effect at that point, because they were all already out of. But Linda Fairstein did not accept the DA's verdict. She had just left the office and she said that she believed that the five coordinated with Reyes and they were, in fact, all guilty after all. And that sort of ended chapter two. Chapter three is as the media attention ramped up of the unjust conviction of the five. There was a documentary by Ken Burns and his family that spelled out what they regarded as a miscarriage of justice. Then in 2019, the well-known movie director, Ava DuVernay, did a dramatization on Netflix about the Central Park Jogger case where Linda Fairstein was really the big villain. And that led to a tremendous backlash against Linda Fairstein. Her publisher dropped her, her literary agent dropped her. She was forced to resign from several boards, including Vassar College, where she went. And she became essentially an exile after being an extremely prominent person. At the same time, one of the five, Yusuf Salam, became an outspoken advocate for the issue of unjust convictions. And bringing us up to this week's story, Youssef is running for the city council in the district that includes the area of Harlem where he grew up. And Linda Fairstein is suing Netflix because she argues that she was portrayed libelously in the movie based on the story. So basically what the story in Airmail is, is about how Salam and Fairstein have essentially changed places. Here was the hero prosecutor who has become this social outcast and the rape defendant convicted person has become a candidate for city council. It's really a remarkable New York story that as my perhaps too long summary illustrates how over time there's been this remarkable change of place. Where do we find Linda Fairstein now? I mean, has she come out and spoken publicly following the lawsuit or what's the latest from her? No, she is living the life effectively of a recluse. She has left Manhattan, moved to a little island off the west coast of Florida. And she wouldn't talk to me for this story, even though I've known Linda for many years and interviewed her about this case back in the day. But neither she nor her lawyers would talk, although they filed extensive papers, which I quote in the airmail story. But Yusuf Salam is certainly very, very available. I hung out with him as he was shaking hands as political candidates do by a subway station in the district in Harlem where he's running. And how did you find him? How does he look back at the events that happened to him in 1989? Well, Yusuf has become a motivational speaker. That's one of the ways he makes a living. And in many respects, he talks in that kind of gauzy, good times, positive thinking vibe that motivational speakers do. And he's all about positivity and looking to the future with one important exception. And this is what I found so interesting is that when I asked him about Linda Fairstein and also Elizabeth Lederer, who was the lead prosecutor in the case, there was and is tremendous bitterness and anger, which you can understand. I mean, he spent almost seven years in prison for something he didn't do. And the fact that Linda not only led the prosecution or led the investigation, that to this day, she almost alone is arguing that Yusuf and the four others are still guilty is really, it's striking to hear how bitter he is, but it's also understandable given what he went through. I mean, you've been following this case for how many years at this point? This case was such a big deal 
I remember where I was when I heard about it. I was working as a prosecutor in the Iran-Contra case. And I remember I was commuting between New York and Washington. And I remember coming in from LaGuardia and listening in the ca taxi's radio to the initial story about the story of the jogger who was at that point fighting, fighting for her life. And I am also a jogger and I've jogged in Central Park many times. I never did it at night, but it was a story that really resonated with me. And it was also a time in where crime was really bad. It was the height of the crack epidemic. And you're talking about a city where there were 2000 murders a year. And now there are maybe 200 murders a year. I mean, it's just a very different place. And the fact, and again, the racial politics were always at the forefront of this case. She was initially described only as a white investment banker, graduate of Wellesley, Yale graduate school, sort of the perfect white victim, the bad black defendants as they were portrayed. And that led to a lot of racial polarization about this case, again, reflective of what was going on in the city at the time and in many respects still. Well, we've seen a tremendous rehabilitation and reinvention for Salam. He now calls himself one of the exonerated five instead of one of the Central Park five. But do you think any such rehabilitation could be in store for Linda Fairstein? Well, it's weird. Frankly, no. And what's puzzling to me about how Linda has behaved in all of this is that one option for would have been to say, in many respects, as Elizabeth Lederer has said, look, we brought this case based on the best information we had at the time. They did confess. They were in the park that night, as they acknowledged. That's never been in dispute. So we made a good faith effort to solve a very serious crime, but we were mistaken and we're sorry and we're moving on. I should add that the five sued the city and ultimately settled for $41 million. Yusuf Salam, before his lawyers, got $7 million. Fairstein could have done that. Fairstein could have said, we did our best, but we made a mistake. Instead, she has doubled down on the guilt, which as you go through the physical evidence in the case, seems frankly preposterous. I don't see rehabilitation coming from her because she persists in what's just simply wrong. All right, Jeffrey. Well, my last question is, does Salam have your vote? Are you in his district? I'm not in his district. I guess if I could just add one more thing about the story again, which makes it so... The other reason this story has had such a long-term resonance is that immediately after the attack on the jogger, Donald Trump bought full-page ads in all four then New York newspapers, essentially pronouncing these five young men guilty and saying that the death penalty should be brought back. This was, in many respects, the beginning of Donald Trump's political career. And over the years, as he has been then a candidate and then president, he too has persisted in announcing that the five are guilty of something, even if they might not be guilty of exactly what they were charged in. I think he's wrong. The fact that Trump exploited the Central Park Five case as a route to his political prominence has also led to the enduring nature of people's interest in this case. So even though this story is 34 years old, it keeps reflecting so many of the big issues that we've all dealt with over these many years. Well, Jeffrey, thank you so much for this great story and for your incredible insights into it here. It is the weekend. I know you've got something. You please, anything. I do. I've got something great. I'm happy about it because if you 
many of you are like me, a fan of the breakout Hulu limited series last year, The Bear, starring Jeremy Allen White as the troubled chef who took over his family restaurant in Chicago. It is back and it's better than ever. It just dropped this week on Hulu and I am not binging it. I'm spacing it out, taking it one episode at a time. All I can say is from the first episode, I'm in as I was in the previous season. So it's The Bear. It's back on Hulu and it stars Jeremy Allen White, directed by Christopher Storr, and check it out. It is what you've been waiting for. Have you seen it, Ashley? You a fan? I love the first season. I mean, what's not to love? Sandwiches, Chicago, sexy man. <laughs> Isn't that me? Actually, you guys have a lot in common, Michael. It's true. Okay. Yeah, I know. Except the sandwiches part. Curly locks, big, thick neck with an Adam's apple and intense eyes. Yeah, it's got a lot in common, but... Yeah, I don't think you've eaten one of those sandwiches in a very long time, though. Just guessing. You're a turkey chili man. I know this about you. I grew up eating those. Come on. They're so good. Next time you and I go back to Chicago to see Barbara, we're getting one of those. Yes. Hi, Barbara. Miss you. And you, my dear, what can you recommend for us this week? I have a really old novel to recommend. Uh, Bud Schulberg's What Makes Sammy Run. You, you've probably already read it. In fact, I'm sure that you have, but I had not read it. Alessandra Stanley, our co-editor at Airmail, recommended it to me, and I'm so glad she did. Not only does this uh, tell us everything we need to know about Hollywood and how it works, but it also gives us some insight into the journalism of the 1930s and 40s and uh, what those universes were like. It, it chronicles the rise and fall maybe rise again of a guy named Sammy Glick, uh, who was born into the Lower East Side, decides to become a successful producer. It became a Broadway musical. And it also talks about the cost of success and what that means and what kind of humanity falls along the wayside uh, when you are pursuing these sorts of dreams. It's a wonderful, very old book, but an awful lot of fun, really easy to read. It's called What Makes Sammy Run by Bud Schulberg. All right. Well, Michael, wishing all of our listeners a fabulous, happy, healthy weekend. And we will see you very soon. Will you please read us out? Absolutely. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our coders are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Keep Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us. <laughs>